0: We'd like to ask that at this time you please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. You might be surprised to hear that I'm not asking you to turn to the book of Acts this morning. There are a couple of reasons why we're actually going to step out of Acts today. We will return there, Lord willing, next Sunday. Uh, first, you may have noticed that many of the members of our church have entered into acute seasons of suffering or trials, cancer, severe accidents relational tensions, wayward adult children. In the last 10 days, three of our members had parents pass away. This has truly proven to be a season of high stress and of deep darkness for many people in the body of Christ here at LBC. And so today what we're going to do is I've gone to a text that I find to be remarkably powerful in times of acute trial and discomfort. Secondly, Next Sunday, when we return to the book of Acts, we are going to be covering a whopping 64 verses, which has proven for me to be a bit more study than I was able to research during this very particularly busy and unusually challenging week. So, for your sake and for mine, we are going to take a short but meaningful foray into the life and ministry of Jesus. Let me give you a little bit of context as to what we're going to see here, what we're stepping into in the book of Mark, chapter 6. The disciples have just returned from going all throughout Israel, where the Lord Jesus sent them two by two to go throughout the land and proclaim the good news of Jesus. He had told them to go and to teach all that he had been teaching. And then, once they returned that very same day, they were exhausted. So Jesus says, Go out into a boat and stay there. Now, we don't know how long they were there, but it's assumed that that was between to four hours of rest during the day. Then Jesus brought them back onto the land where he taught for the rest of the afternoon. Then he performed what is probably the most well uh, noticeable of all of his miracles where he fed 5,000 men, probably roughly 20 to 25,000 total people with five loaves and two fish, multiplying the food. The crowds loved that and they wanted to make Jesus king By force. And this is the highest popularity Jesus would ever have during his earthly ministry. They estimate that roughly one in every five people in Israel had a family relative present at that event. There are so many people that were there that saw Jesus do this incredible miracle. The crowds wanted to take Jesus, and think about it this guy can just make food. If this guy's our king, we never have to work again. Of course they wanted Jesus to be king, but they wanted him to be king for all of the wrong reasons. So, Jesus, at this point, is going to do something very special to teach the disciples something of great significance in the midst of this great popularity and great power being on display. He is going to show them something about their own hearts. And I hope that in our case this morning, this will prove to be rich comfort for us. Hope for today, bright hope for tomorrow. Let's read beginning at Mark chapter 6, verse 45. This is God's word. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Let's pray that the Lord would use this sermon to transform us and to comfort us this morning. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we do ask that as we come to your word that you would reveal to us your glory, that you would reveal to us your power, that you would comfort us by showing us what you showed the disciples here so that we might hear those very same words, do not be afraid and take heart. Lord, I pray that those in the church right now who are suffering, who are experiencing major trials, that they would take heart. They would be comforted. Lord, I pray for those who are dealing with minor issues, struggles and temptations and ongoing battles with sin. I pray, Lord, that they would take heart and they would find comfort. Lord, I pray for those of us who are not experiencing trials right now, That this will be preparatory for us for those days when darkness is at our doorstep. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and our God. Amen. For the narrative that we look at today, what we're going to do is we're going to lay out and see three undeniable truths. These three undeniable truths are proclaimed to us in the life and ministry of Jesus. Number one, Jesus is a God of sovereign design. Number two, Jesus is a God of sovereign compassion. And number three, Jesus is a God of sovereign glory. Let's first see that he is a God of sovereign design. Look again at verse 45. It says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, first you'll notice the word immediately. Immediately. Jesus does not wait to allow the crowds to make him king. He does not wait for them to make him a crown. He does not even give the disciples here an opportunity to speak or to rest. He just rushes them into the boat and sends them away. This time, he is not merely sending them on a leisurely trip up the coast. He is not saying, hop in the boat and take a nap. This time, he tells them, cross over to the other side. Now, pay close attention to the wording here. It says, he made his disciples get into the boat. Now, the wording here indicates there was probably at least a passing hesitation on the part of the disciples. And knowing them, it's possible that it goes far beyond a hesitation and it moves into the realm of actual resistance. Consider it this way. Imagine that I go back home one day after work and I enter the house and my wife says to me, I made Asaph clean his room. That tells me something. That's very different than if she says, I told Asaph to clean his room or Asaph cleaned his room. By saying, I made him clean his room, I immediately know from the construction of her sentence that she had to apply pressure to get Asaph to clean his room. Asaph, you are very good at cleaning your room. Thank you. The Greek wording here is strongly indicating that the disciples were offering at least a mild resistance and probably a stronger resistance of actually getting in the boat. But why? Why don't they want to get in the boat? Well, it's most likely a combination of two things. First of all, some of these guys are seasoned fishermen. They understand the nature of the sea and consider the time of day. It is evening. Night is falling. They would have known that it is unwise to be in a small boat on the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. The Sea of Galilee is known for having storms that would develop Without warning in the evening, as they there's this massive wall, basically, of high hills, and pressure would build on one side of them. And at night, when the temperature cools, that pressure comes over the hills and sweeps down across the Sea of Galilee. And when that would happen, you did not want to be on the sea. And they knew that about the sea. This was their old stomping grounds. And he says to them, get in the boat and cross. Even though there's no rain... There's often these strong winds which would capsize most of the boats that were there at night. And so to this day, fishermen avoid being on the water at night in small vessels for fear they're going to be caught off guard. Also think that there were no lighthouses, there were no radios, there were no motors, there were no modern tools to assist them in their efforts. So it's possible the disciples did not want to get in the boat and sail because of the danger of the sea. That would make sense. But I also think there's more to it than that. I think there's at least a second issue here. Look down to verse 52. At the conclusion, it tells us, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now, we're not going to examine this phrase fully today, but it is important to see that there is a problem in their hearts. And it's important for you to see that there is a divine design on God's part in what Jesus is doing here. Jesus purposed For all of this to happen, because even when they were observing that miracle, even when the disciples were watching this incredible feat with their eyes of Jesus feeding these 5,000 men, this massive crowd of people, even then, it says their hearts were hardened. And so Jesus sends the disciples out onto the sea into precarious territory because he is setting them up. This is a divine, beneficent scheme to undo the hardness of their hearts. Now I'm going to use this phrase multiple times throughout this sermon, divine beneficent scheme. Let me explain it for a moment. Divine simply means that this scheme was completely orchestrated and carried out by God himself. Beneficent is just an adjective that means that God's attitude towards his people is one of favor and generosity. His face is smiling toward them. His heart is tender toward them. He is beneficent to them. And by scheme, I do not mean to say that Jesus has any kind of ill intent. By scheme, I mean that in the sense that God has determined to do something in creation that cannot be thwarted. So when you put all of this together, you have the God of ultimate power, the God of ultimate authority with a heart of love towards his people who he has set into motion this unstoppable plan for their good. To explain it biblically, we could just look at Romans eight twenty eight: For all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But do not stop reading there. Dip your toes into verse 29 through 31, and you will see for those whom he foreknew he also predestined, To do what? To be conformed to the image of his son. That is a divine beneficent scheme. He wants them to look like Jesus. He wants you to look like Jesus. I believe that part of the reason that Jesus put them in the boat and sent them away that night was so that he could let this night be a night they would never forget. So that this night would strip away the hardness of their hearts and so that they would be more like Christ. That they would remember the master walking to them on the waves. That they would always be reminded that even then, remember what I was thinking, remember what I was feeling. And even in that, Jesus loved me. That they might be reminded of the hardness of their own hearts towards God when they should have been in awe of Christ and worshiping Him. See, we tend to have such a narrow view about life. This is natural because we can only see life naturally from our own vantage point. But Jesus is not only working in your life, he is working all things together for his purposes. God is controlling all things, how every atom bumps into every other atom, and he is doing trillions of things every nanosecond for every single person who is alive, and he is doing all of these things so that they might crescendo in such a way that his glory might be made known. Jesus is all-knowing. He is omniscient, and He sent them into the water. This is a divine beneficent scheme, and it includes sending the disciples into the wind and to the storm. This windstorm did not catch Jesus off guard. Jesus sent them in that direction because He loved them. Eighteen years ago, I was a missionary in Brazil. Seventeen years ago, I was deported. The story is much more boring than you would think. It's just paperwork issues. But if you could have put a microphone into my heart and heard what my heart was saying when I was on the flight back from Brazil during that time, you would have heard something like this. You would have heard my heart saying, God, what do you think you're doing? Don't you realize that all of those people there need me? Don't you understand that I am doing this for you? Don't you realize there's so much to be done? Don't you realize there are so many things that we were just on the cusp of accomplishing? How could you do this? How could you send me away? Now, the text doesn't express these words, but I know that if I was one of those disciples, this would have been my attitude. Jesus, don't you see these people? We just handed out food to them. They need us. They think highly of us. This is the first time in our ministry they've even paid attention to us. Now they're looking at us and they want to hear from us. Don't you see that they need us? Don't you see that we have stuff to do here? Don't you see that we're on the cusp of achieving something beautiful and wonderful? How, Jesus, could you tell us to get in this boat and send us away? Because Jesus had a plan. His divine beneficent scheme was not to do what they wanted, but was to show those disciples his glory. Now, I told you my story of being deported from Brazil, but the reality is it doesn't take something big like that for me or for you to begin questioning God. I think I'm probably right in assuming you are quite like me in that regard. It's easy for our hearts to cry out, God, why are you doing this? Those of us who believe in the sovereignty of God, we should be the most peaceful and content, easygoing and forgiving people in the world, we should be the people who are least surprised by trials, and we should be the least surprised by tribulation, and we should be the least surprised by persecution, but we should be sure they will come as part of God's design. One of the most evil lies of the devil is the one which comes from the mouth of so called preachers and evangelists, which say that God just wants you to be happy. He wants to take away all of those pains. He wants to make sure you never feel anything like that again. He just wants you to be healthy. He wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to have the desires of your heart, and that's all. Those are false teachers. Beware those messages. That is a message that does not come from the mouth of God. It does not come from the uh, picture that we see in the Gospels. It comes from the mouth of the devil himself. There are occasions when God will send you into the storm. There are occasions where he will tell you to get into the boat at night and cross the sea. God occasionally wants us to suffer and wants us to be uncomfortable, and there are no accidental trials in your life. Jesus is a God of sovereign design, which leads us to our second point, that Jesus is a God of sovereign compassion. Now look with me again to verses 47 and 48. It says, and when evening came... The boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. Notice the way that Mark is describing the difficulty of the disciples and what they're experiencing here. He highlights that they are barely moving forward, and every inch that is gained is painful. Rowing is challenging in the best of circumstances. According to an article on ESPN that I found about rowing, it speaks about it in difficulty in this terminology. Here's a quote from ESPN. It says, Physiologists, in fact, have calculated that rowing a 2,000-meter race, the Olympic standard, takes the same physiological toll as playing two professional basketball games back-to-back. And it exacts that toll in six minutes, end quote. Rowing is hard. Rowing is backbreaking work. But when you add to it the resistance of the wind and the constant danger of being capsized by the waves, it results in a dangerous scenario where every single individual in that boat would constantly be working to keep the rest of them alive. And all of their muscles would have been constantly strained. And all of their minds would have been ceaselessly on high alert. They would have been exhausted. And notice how long they have been rowing. When they set out, it was probably still light outside. Why do I think so? Because when he told them to get into the boat, the crowd had not yet dispersed. Crowds would not like to be outside at, in the dark in these days. That was a recipe for disaster with thieves and robbers. So they would make sure to dissipate well before the sun went down. So when Jesus tells them to get into the boat, it is still light outside. Yet now it says it is the fourth watch. Well, what is that? The fourth watch is the final watch of the night. It's the time between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. These disciples, in other words, have been rowing all night long. And don't forget, they've just returned from a mission trip. And when they returned, Jesus even noted. He verbalized how exhausted they were, and he told them to get into a boat and rest. Now, just as a side note, it's very possible that if Jesus had not commanded that they go get into the boat and rest for several hours, that they would not have had the strength to get this far in the night before falling prey to the wind and the waves. He provided rest for them for a season to prepare them for the command he would give them to go into suffering. So Jesus sends the disciples out into the sea, and then he remains on the shore for a time. So they're a great distance from him. And yet notice the odd phrase, verse 48, three words, and he saw, and he saw. They've been rowing now for six to nine hours. My assumption is they're not right by the shoreline. Think about that with me for a moment. It's the middle of the night. There is crazy wind. There are certainly waves, and it would have surely obscured and darkened this vessel out in the middle of the sea. I don't know if you've ever been out on the beach late at night. You try to look out and see what's out there. Now, we have a lot of light pollution on Long Island, but if you go to a place where there's not a lot of light pollution and you try to do such a thing, it is dark out there. There is nothing out there. And even if there is a boat on the waves, you're never going to see it. It is certainly true that the fact Jesus saw them is speaking about Jesus as God. It is going beyond human capabilities. So let's get the timing of this passage down. It's very important that you see this. Look at verse 47. And when evening came, and when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully. When did he see that they were making headway painfully? When evening came. When did he help them? The fourth watch. This means... That the disciples have been rowing a minimum of six hours, in the wind, possibly nine hours, and Jesus knows that they are struggling, and he knows they are having great hardship, and he knows that it is difficult, but he does not immediately rush to their aid. This is actually not unusual in the Bible. In order to examine the idea of God allowing us to experience hardship before he intervenes, let's just do a brief excursus into some biblical theology by way of Old Testament survey. When was the first time that God looked at a situation and said that it was not good? It was during creation. And he looked and he sees that he created man, but he is alone. Genesis 2.18. It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. But you know what God does not do? He does not immediately make a helper for him. Instead, he sends Adam on that first day. He says, name all of the creatures. And it seems like that would take some time. And after Adam names all the creatures, it says that he realized there was not a helper found that was fit for him. It seems as though he was actively looking. He was interested. Everyone else has a partner, but there's no other person for me It seems as though he knows in verse 20 what God said in verse 18, it's not good that man should be alone. But God waits until Adam realizes it before he makes Eve. He makes Adam delay until he understands that he needs God. Why was Noah's family in the ark for over a year? It's definitely not to prove anything to all the other people. All the other people are dead. It does not take over a year for everyone to drown. Who is he teaching a lesson to? To Noah. And his descendants. Why did God allow the Israelites to live in Egypt for over 400 years as slaves rather than immediately stepping in? Did he not hear them for those first 400 years? Of course not. He was teaching them something. And why didn't God make King David the king over Israel when he was first anointed rather than making him wait for at least 15 years while Saul tried to kill him before he would finally be sitting on the throne? And the most important question, why did God wait so long to send Jesus? Why not just send the Redeemer right after Adam and Eve fell? Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 through 5 answers that question. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. He does things in his timing, and his timing is perfect. So what does that have to do with sovereign compassion? Well, first, regarding sovereignty... I want you to understand why I'm including the word sovereignty with compassion is because there are many times that you and I are compassionate towards something, but you can't do anything about it. For example, earlier in the year, there were massive earthquakes that took place in Turkey. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands in Turkey and Syria, dead. And we prayed for them, and we asked the Lord to help them. And many people in the church sent aid to them in different forms. But realistically, there's not much we could do for them. You couldn't dig them out of the rubble. You couldn't give them a new house. You couldn't give them a new life. We might have compassion, but what can we do about it? Yet Jesus is not only compassionate, he is sovereign. He's not only desirous to help, he has the power to help. And I want you to notice this. Hold on to this and never let it go. The most compassionate thing that Jesus could do for the disciples was to let them come to the end of their own strength. Why not show up six or nine hours earlier? Because he wanted them to see their own need. And he wanted them to be able to see that he alone can meet their need. By experiencing the turmoil and the hardship and the strain of rowing against the wind hour after hour, the disciples knew they needed Jesus. They knew they could not make it on their own. Now, I'm not pretending to know all of the reasons that God allowed me to be deported from Brazil, But looking back, I'm certainly able to say that I understand some of his reasons. God used that pain, which genuinely was pain. It was suffering. He used that to allow me to see that the people of Brazil did not need me. God replaced me very easily. We are all imminently replaceable. And he used that to direct me then to Italy and then to New York and then to my wife and then to plant a church and then to merge with LBC. By God's grace, we are here in large part because if God didn't kick me out of Brazil, I'm hard-headed enough, I would have probably still been there today. But the Lord used difficulty and pain to move me out. And I'm not going to pretend that I know the reasons that you are experiencing whatever hardship you are experiencing right now. But I do know this, that God is at work in the life of his disciples with a divine beneficent scheme. In your hardship, row, but know that Jesus is watching, and know that he is compassionate, and know that he is working even when you can't see it. Jesus is a God of sovereign compassion. And point number three, Jesus is a God of sovereign glory. Let's face it, uh, the English language is falling apart. It is devolving into a mess of absolute gibberish. For example, look up the word literal in the Merriam-Webster's Dictionary, and you will see that there's not one definition, but there are two. And then let your mind writhe in anguish and disgust as you find that these two definitions are diametrically opposed to one another. Definition number one from the Merriam-Webster's, in a literal sense or manner, or what actually is. That's definition number one. That's what literally means. Definition number two, virtually or figuratively, I.e., I will literally turn the world upside down to combat cruelty or injustice. In other words, according to the great M.W., literal means both one thing and that thing's opposite, depending on the context. This is literally the definition of illogical. It breaks the law of non-contradiction. The reason that things like this happen is because dictionaries are reactions to common speech. To state it simply, people have used the word literal or literally incorrectly for so long that now it has institutionally been considered correct speech to use the word literal when what you actually mean is figurative. We use words incorrectly all the time. But perhaps the most egregious misuse of the English vocabulary is displayed when we are trying to praise something. That hot dog was epic. These nine cat pictures will totally change your life. This pasta is everything. Traffic today ruined my life. That song gave me all the feels. This new gadget that I got that does nothing of value for me or for anyone else is awesome. As people have lost their vocabularies, they have turned to hyperbole in order to make a point. We have recognized that modern speech describes things poorly, and it does so because it exaggerates the value of an object. You could say, this pen is awesome, so that our words make things out to be better than they really are. You may be asking yourself, well, why the English lesson? Get to the sermon. Well, this is actually quite important for us to understand as we think about the text. You see, the English language, and every other language for that matter, is woefully inadequate to describe God and His glory. But it is inadequate for the exact opposite reason that I was describing before. Our language overstates and overestimates the value of things. But the human language that we use is limited and unable to fully define or to describe the awesome glory of God. He is greater than we can speak. That's why the hymn writer said, oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise. I wish I had a thousand tongues that I could use and by tongues he means languages, I wish I had a thousand languages that I knew that I could use to speak my great Redeemer's praise. As we consider the glory of God, it is necessary for us to understand He is far greater than we can describe. What am I talking about when I speak of His glory? Well, The glory of God is when the absolute perfection and infinite beauty and unparalleled worth of God is made manifest or visible to His creation. What does it mean when Psalm 19:1 says that the heavens declare the glory of God? It means that the expanse of the heavens is screaming to us. If you think that's big, the God who made it is huge. He's beyond your imagination. Those beautiful sunsets that re- we see, they reflect that God is creative. He's got a mind of beauty. It means that those spinning bodies in the sky remind us that God is a God of perfect order and planning. It means that creation is reminding us that our creator is glorious. He is absolute perfection, infinite beauty, unparalleled worth. When we are told to give God glory in the Bible, you must understand, it does not mean that we are to give God something he does not have. It means, rather, that we are to recognize who he is. It means we are beholding what he already is. With that in mind, let's turn our attention back to the text at hand. Look at verses 48 through 50. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. Now we've reached in our text a phrase that raises really, to be honest, a very interesting theological quandary. In that little phrase, he meant to pass them by. What does that mean, that he intended to pass them by? Well, this phrase raises two specific theological problems for us. First, he has watched the disciples now for six to nine hours, and he is just going to pass by them? Maybe this has happened to you. You've been at a party or an event That's crowded, there's a room full of people, and you look across the room and you see somebody that you really need to talk to. And you catch their eye and you know they saw you and they know you immediately began to deliberately move in their direction because you need to have a conversation. And as you kind of make your way through the crowd, excuse me, pardon me, excuse me, pardon me, and make your way over there to the other side, when you arrive at the place where they were standing, you realize they have subtly made their way to the exit. And by the time that you get there, they have already returned home for the night. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is he just sneaking past them when they're in this great need and not planning to stop by until finally they see him and they they call out, Hey! Hey! It says they saw him and called out. This calls into question the character of Jesus. But there's a second and equally distressing question that is raised by this phrase. One of the important truths that God has revealed about himself is that his plans are set and they cannot be thwarted. Consider just a couple of times the Bible states this very clearly. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24 and 27 says this, The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be, and as I have purposed, so it shall stand. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who, who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, who can turn it back? Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans of a man, but the purpose of the Lord will stand. Or Isaiah 46, 10. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. By saying that Jesus intended to pass them by, but then his purposes were interrupted by the call of the disciples, it is calling into question the deity of Christ, God's plans do not get interrupted. His purposes do not get altered. His plans never change. So what in the world is happening here? What does it mean that he meant to pass them by? It must not mean what we initially often think about when we hear these words, he meant to pass them by. Actually, in fact, this phrase has a much deeper meaning. So much so that I think these little words are the center of the entire narrative. I think that these words are the point. Mark is trying to point us to something here when he says that Jesus meant to pass them by. This is a theological statement. You see, this exact phrase is only used twice in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This exact phrase is used twice, and it is the most intentional reference to one of the most powerful events in the life of Moses. In Exodus chapter 33... Uh, desperate for a closer look and connection with God, Moses pleads with God and says, please show me your glory. And God replies to him and says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you. That's occasion number one. I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to you With whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, here is a place by me. You shall stand on the rock, and so it shall be while my glory passes by you. That I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. And then in the following chapter, God does pass by him, and we read these words. And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Wow! That's God, and what is he doing? He is revealing himself or passing by Moses. God passed by Moses, and Moses got a glimpse of his glory. That's the first time we see those words in the Old Testament. In order to find the second occasion, we need to fast forward 588 years to the very same mountain, probably the the very same location where Moses heard those words, Elijah is there, And he was there because he was hiding from Jezebel. He was in fear of her because he had killed all of the prophets of Baal. And this is where we find him when we read the words in 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 11 through 13. It says, Then he, the Lord, said, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. That's occasion number two. And a great and strong wind tore into the mountain and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a still small voice. And so it was when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And suddenly a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Once again, we see God revealing his glory in a limited and veiled way. And now let's flash forward another 885 years where we see Jesus has a purpose which is identical to that which was written about Moses and Elijah. His purpose was not to ignore them. It was to reveal himself to them. He meant to pass by them. The phrase does not mean sneak around them. It means to put himself on display for them. Jesus' purposed to pass before them so that they might know who he is. The Messiah has been constantly making himself known to them, and they're getting a better and better glimpse of his glory. Look again at verse 49. And when they saw him walking on the sea, they supposed it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were troubled. But immediately he talked with them and said to them, Be of good cheer, it is I, do not be afraid. When the disciples saw Jesus, it did not calm their fears. In fact, it intensified them. It says that when they actually finally saw Jesus, they were troubled. That's when it says they were troubled. Their fear of the natural sea may have been dwarfed by their fear of this supernatural being crossing atop the waves. But Jesus immediately calls out to them and says to them, Be of good cheer, or as some translations say it, Take heart. And he concludes his call to them by saying, Do not be afraid. What gives Jesus the right to say that to them? How can he tell them to stop fearing and take heart? Well, the answer lies in the middle of his statement. The most important words that he utters in verse 50 are the words, It is I. Now, there's an interesting translation choice that has been made here. The words translated, it is I, are somewhat common in the gospel accounts. It's the two small Greek words, ego, a me. But every other time that Jesus ever utters these words, it is always translated with two words in English, I am. Some of your eyes just got a little bit wider. You understand what he's saying. Do not be afraid, I am. I am. Jesus was doing much more than just walking on the water. He was preaching to them with his actions, and he was showing them that he was truly the God who spoke from the burning bush and said, I am. Jesus is a God of sovereign glory, and his glory passed by the disciples. And if you are going through a severe trial, maybe your trial is hard. Maybe you're not going through a trial, and it's down the road. But if you are in Christ, you need to know that you can take heart, you can have courage, you can be strong, you can hold fast, not because of who you are, but because Jesus says, I am. There is nothing else that you can hold on to. There is nothing else that will comfort you or satisfy you but Jesus Christ. And if you are suffering, know that God in his sovereign design has sent you there. His compassion has seen you and come to you there, and all of this is done so that you might behold His glory afresh. And we all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. Our God and Father in heaven, we do pray for those in our church who are experiencing severe and acute suffering right now, We ask, Lord, that just as you saw the disciples in their discomfort, in their pain, in their rowing, Lord, I pray that you would come to those who are suffering in our congregation right now. And Lord, I pray that you would please uplift their hearts. Say to them those words, take heart, it is I, I am. Father God, I pray for those in this room who are not suffering right now, that this would be preparatory for us as we look forward to those days when darkness will arise. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you in those times, trusting in you in those times, that we would have hearts that are strengthened by you in those times, and that most of all, we would see your glory more clearly even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Father God, I pray for every person in this room that does not know you. Lord, there is no comfort apart from Christ. I pray, Lord, that if there is anyone here who has not yet bowed the knee to Jesus, the King of all, that they would hear these good words. Hear the heart of this shepherd. They would turn and they would be healed and forgiven. Lord God, we pray that you would please break the heart of anyone in this room who is still walking in rebellion, that they might be saved. And Lord, we do pray for every single person in this room that we would be transformed into the image of Christ by beholding his glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.